I did an episode that goes into what it's like to be a commercial director. Um, a lot of us get into this business uh, to make films. A lot of us get into this business to, to be a music video director. And some of us get into this business uh, to be a commercial director. And each of those titles are just a little bit different. And each one has its own intricacies. Um, and uh, if you look at successful, let's say that you want to get into this business to, to direct movies. In the past, uh, you've actually see, you can actually go back and look at the progression that a lot of these directors have had in their career. Directors like Spike Jones that started uh, directing uh, uh, music videos, like really amazing music videos, innovative music videos, and then transitioned into doing uh, commercials and innovative commercials, and then transitioned into doing films. Um, and that was the career path for a lot of amazing directors like um, David Fincher, Mark Romanek, um, all sorts of directors that took that path. And when I started in this business, uh, I saw that and I, I looked at those guys who were my idols at that time and I'm like, I, I can do the same thing. Like Ridley Scott, Tony Scott, uh, they started by doing music videos or commercials. So that's where I'll start. Um, and the, the idea is pretty solid. You know, because you get to get a uh, uh, good experience, you get to practice your craft, um, and you get to turn out projects at a faster rate than films ever can do. Um, and it's, it's really great. And for quite some time, that seemed like the, a move that would also keep you employed <laughs> and keep money coming in. Um, but it has changed. And the marketplace has changed a lot, and it's tough to be a music video director these days and be able to make a salary. And it's getting harder and harder uh, to make a good salary as a commercial director these days, um, especially if you're in the small marketplaces. And I just wanted to do a show that really talked real about how the industry worked for me in uh, a small uh, community like Boston. Um, and Boston is being that it is a sort of a small marketplace. It still produces amazing commercials. It still has some of the largest agencies in the country working out of it. Um, but it, I went through an interesting experience with it and it ultimately led me to depression, actually surprising. Um, and we'll get into that on this show. Um, and I've already recorded the show, so I'm, I'm recording the, this this intro afterwards and <laughs> I feel bad for my guest <laughs> so on today's show it's uh, Ben Consoli he is a uh, commercial director out of Boston um, he also runs an amazing podcast which I was the guest on um, a couple of weeks ago uh, it's called go creative it's the go creative show um, and the podcast that him and I did will be out in November and hopefully this will be out around the same time um, and I asked him to be on the show or, uh, we talked about him being on the show, uh, to talk about what it's like to be a commercial director and the conversation starts pretty innocently. Um, and then it goes to a real place and it goes to a real honest place. Um, and I, that's the one thing that I've always promised you guys on the show is that, uh, I'm not going to sugarcoat or powder puff how this business works, uh, because ultimately, what do we learn from that? I mean, what do you learn from going on Instagram and checking out how fucking cool someone's life is um, when it's actually curated to look that way? 
Um, and I refuse to do that on this show. I don't want to curate this world because it's unhealthy. It's, an un- it's a really unhealthy thing to set unrealistic expectations for people that get into this business because if you get into this business thinking that you're going to get these things, you're insecure that you aren't. And when you are that insecure about it, then you start making really desperate choices. And through the process of years and years of desperate choices, um, it has uh, helped lead to an industry that doesn't support us as much as it should financially. Um, It is very aggressive and competitive. Um, And uh, it's still a fun thing to do, but you'll see. This is a good episode. This is a great episode. It's an honest episode. And I just want to thank Ben for being so incredibly patient. (laughs) Uh, Because I don't think he realized that the show was going to go the way it did. Um, So it's a good, it's a really good listen, guys. Um, And I appreciate, as always, appreciate you guys uh, tuning in and supporting the show. Love the fact that you keep going to my Instagram accounts. That's at Mike Petchy at Instagram or at In Love of the Process Pod. That's In Love of the Process P-O-D on Instagram. Uh, there, you guys have been suggesting guests. You guys have been giving me feedback, leaving reviews, uh, and I am going to pay it all back to you guys. Um, that is where I will be releasing contests. I will be releasing the ability to watch some of my films uh, just to you guys. Uh, because you guys are the fans of the show. I don't put my stuff out on YouTube anymore. I just give it out privately. And I love the exchange that we have for this stuff because you guys are family at this point. Uh, You guys are helping support the show. You guys are helping support me. And I love you for it. Uh, So thank you so much. And if you like this episode, let me know. This episode goes a little dark. And it's good that it does. It goes dark and honest. Um, and let me know what you think. Uh, let me know if I've just become a cynical prick. <laughs> but I, the truth of the matter is, is that now that I've changed my life and I've made this move, uh, I feel a lot lighter and brighter and a lot more creative. But this episode goes back through a lot of the stuff that uh, Boston was. Um, so enjoy it. Enjoy, enjoy me uh, ranting and raving. <laughs> Uh, So without further ado, uh, you know the deal. Uh, Find a uh, quiet place, get those noise-canceling headphones, uh, sit back, relax, and get ready for some truth on In Love With The Process. Hey, Ben. Welcome to the show, man. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate you coming on, and uh, I appreciate you having me on your podcast. I I strongly believe in the, I'll go on your podcast, you go on my podcast thing, and then it helps us extend out the conversation a bit longer. It really does, and I think our, our audiences are interested in the same thing. 
So it makes sense, but I loved our conversation. I can't wait to release it. Oh, cool, man. I can't wait to hear it. So it came out okay? Yeah, it came out great. Nice, nice. All right. Well, let, let's uh, catch my audience up on who you are. Um, uh, ben is a director. He's a commercial director. Are you doing film stuff too, or is it just commercial work? No, it's commercial work. I did one short film, and it was a really fun experience, but... Um, it's just been so busy with commercial, social stuff, agency stuff that we really don't have the time to do like passion projects. Although I really want to find the time to do that. It's, it's something that is a goal of mine yeah, for yeah. next year, for sure. Well, dude, there's nothing wrong with being so busy doing commercial work. <laughs> no, there isn't. But I think that there is a value in just kind of making something that you don't need to worry about trying to sell a product. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Just having something that really hones your voice. Because, you know, as you know, with the commercial stuff, like your job is to, you know, do something that you're passionate about, but also make someone else's idea a reality. So it'd be fun to make my own idea a reality. Yeah, hell yeah, dude. But I think it's great that you're on the show because um, I don't think I've had, I think you're the first, um, yeah, I think you're one of the first uh, commercial directors that have been on the show. And I think that um, the audience needs to understand, and I've tried to say this before on the show, that there is a big difference between directing your own film and directing a commercial. And I think that the skill in being a great commercial director is navigating um, the waters that you're put in. <laughs> yes. Uh, well said. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's the big gig. And, and um, I, I think I saw, talked about this on your show. Where I think my my first mistake when I started doing commercials and made that jump into the, um, the commercial world was that uh, I was taking it on like I do my films. And uh, I really had to get over my own ego, you know, to a certain extent. Because when you're a film director and if you're producing your own stuff, more, more importantly, if you're financing your own stuff, then you're the, you're the fucking boss. You can do whatever you want. You have the final say. And then your brain is in that sort of anxiety mode of like, oh, okay, everything's riding on my shoulders. I have to have a good idea. I have to find this idea. I have to find the story in this and I have to make this. And so you're, you're putting that all on yourself. And I know the first few times that I did commercials, uh, they would send me a treatment. They would send me a script uh, and you'd go through the whole pitch process, which I'd love to talk about with you. Um, and then, uh, I was taking it on as if I was doing a film of mine, which was like, I need to figure out the story. I need to figure out all the stuff. Um, and it isn't that case because you have uh, a whole bunch of, uh, creative, uh, people from the agency who have been working it out with their client, uh, and they've come up with a story. They've come up with all this stuff and you're not necessarily, and this isn't all the time, but most of the time, you're not necessarily hired for your skills. <laughs> As a film director, uh, you're hired uh, because they need somebody. Uh, it, it's almost like an insurance policy. Like, it, you know that if these guys could direct themselves, they wouldn't even hire us. They would just be like, boom, like, we'll, we'll, we'll deal with it. We'll take that extra cash. Yeah. Um, now, how do you, how would you describe commercial directing? I think... A, a large portion, a large percentage of the commercial directing that I'm seeing is client management, mm -hmm. uh, helping somebody hone their initial vision and um, 
and then kind of making it happen. Like a lot of times when you first get the treatments from the ad agencies, the ideas are interesting. They're great. They don't necessarily reflect a realistic budget <laughs> and they aren't necessarily like well-crafted for filmmaking. So you have to go in and help them organize it in a way that it makes sense for, you know, visual storytelling and the timing, you know, something that'll fit in 15 or 30 or 60 seconds or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. um, so at the beginning, you're helping them craft their idea. And there is definitely a fine line between helping them, uh, you know, have a slightly better idea than they came in with versus you changing their idea. And as much as they want collaboration, I think they also want you to be able to just kind of make what they've already come up with a reality. Yeah. And um, it, it, it's, a, it's a fine line. There's definitely been times where I feel like my ideas are really welcome and, you know, pretty major, you know, um, story notes have changed because of ideas that we presented. But then there are other times where I, I know that my job is just to make that idea work. Um, it's just so much people skill. It's, it's amazing to me how just being good with people and being able to transfer information from one party to the next is such an important part of our job. It's nuts. It's, it's, it's fucking 90% of our job, dude. I mean, whether you're, you're doing that with agency folks or whether you're doing that with clients, whether you're doing that with crew or whether you're doing that with actors, um, essentially you're, you're, uh, you're like a translator, you know what I mean? And so you're, you're essentially yes. just trying to bring all this stuff together and they're hiring you to filter it through your brain, which I've talked about before on the show. Uh, you should, people need to sort of get it through their heads that they're hired. Ultimately, they're hired because of who they are, what they do, their life experiences, and whether or not their work uh, can translate whatever it is that the client needs. Um, and if you can, in the beginning, I think it's very easy to be insecure about that, where it's just like, I don't, you know, I, I need to overassert myself and I need to make sure that uh, my style is put in this piece. And I think it, at least with me, the, the longer I started to do this stuff, the more I just embraced what, I, what it is I do, embraced uh, my filmmaking skills and then really leaned in heavily into what you were just saying, which is the social aspect of it. You know, like sitting and talking with the clients and making them feel at ease with some of their decisions, um, coming up with like uh, problem solving stuff for them on like how can I get all this information crammed into, you know, 15 seconds or 30 seconds or uh, mm. how can we make it so that the actor is a bit more emotional. Um, so I, I really, f I find myself being a problem solver on sets more than anything else. Do you, is it different for you? Yeah, I, I think... Yeah, I mean, problem, problem solver is a good way to think about it. Um, it's not that tons of problems arise, but it's like, as you, as you keep going, you know, as you make some lighting decisions, a new idea will pop up. Or as you look at wardrobe, some new ideas will pop up. And I think a lot of your job, problem solving, yeah, but I think more or less it's just helping people to, uh, be, more, to be more sure of their decisions, if that makes sense. Like when you have a room full of people looking at wardrobe and everybody has a say and everybody, you know, you're starting to nitpick the smallest little thing, <laughs> just kind of helping them just be like, no, the decision you made is good. Let's, we're, we're, we're done. We have it. Let's go. Um, kind of ushering that forward, I think, is a big part of it too. 
Mm. Yeah, it's it's not being afraid of putting your own neck on that chopping block either. You know what I mean? I've seen commercial directors um, that aren't very decisive because they're afraid of being decisive. And I think that is a Mm. fear that kind of runs through commercial sets is that a lot of people are afraid to be decisive because they don't want to be held responsible for whether or not it's successful, especially from the client's end. I've seen that a lot with agency folks where it's just like, yeah, and then they sort of like shrink back in the background behind the Mm -hmm. boss because they don't want to be the one that, uh, that ultimately is responsible for it. And then sometimes it's, and I, I guess I'm getting a little dark here, but sometimes I feel like as a director, um, you're kind of being put on the line. You know what I mean? And to, like that's part of your job where it's like, okay, have an opinion and you're going to be the one that has this opinion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if it's yeah. successful or not, maybe you will or will not get hired next time. <laughs> I I agree with that. I think that that's true. Um <laughs> Uh, but so <laughs> let's, let's go back a little bit here. So hey, let me catch the audience up in general. Um, how did you, how did you get started? You're, you're, you're working out of Boston, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And how did you get started as a commercial director? Well, up until I got, well, I went to school at Emerson. So I learned a lot of, I didn't, I didn't really take film courses at Emerson. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was sort of in the film program, like you learned, editing and I learned a little bit of audio design and website design I did and just a whole bunch of little odds and ends that kind of kind of helped me understand storytelling through a whole bunch of different mediums. And when I left, all I really had on my portfolio was just a bunch of little family movies and stuff that I did um, at school. Mm -hmm. After that, I got a PA job at Comcast Spotlight, which is the company that does, uh, well, they're one of the companies that do those really, really inexpensive local cable ads. And that was a really interesting opportunity because uh, they're super low budget. And because of that, you really got to do as a PA way more than a PA normally does. So within a very short period of time, I was shooting for them and then Mm. editing for them. And then uh, I just became what they called a preferred vendor. So commercials that were they weren't able to do because they had too much coming through uh, would go to their preferred vendor list. And over the course of a couple of years, I started to have my own little local cable commercials. Hmm. And that served as a, a very you know early portfolio that I was able to use when I was trying to sell my video production you know abilities. Uh, I had identified uh, a potential market with academic videos. Um, this was before YouTube was you know, really going. So the way that schools were sending their, um, like in, in the package that uh, a, a high school or a college would send out to potential students would have like a little DVD in it that showed what their school is all about. Like this, you know, kind of brand academic video. Right, right. And I saw that that was something that I could probably do because I've been kind of telling stories similar to that, but just in very short form. And I went to my, um, my grammar school and I was like, hey, you guys want one of these videos? I'll do it for free because I want one on my reel. And they said, yeah, and I did it. It was awful, but <laughs> I had now an academic video and I was able to like say, hey, you know, I do these education videos. And I truly, and no one really believes it when I tell them, but I really did just go door to door. 
I went to schools. I gave them the DVD. I'm like, hey, this is what I do. You guys need this because I know you're sending out videos every year. And I think I did two or three for free before I started charging. And once I had a good enough portfolio of them, I went to an ad agency called Forge that's in Boston. Mm -hmm. Um, It just so happened that they were uh, wanting to expand their... um, their um like they sort of they sort of broke off a little piece of their company to focus just on higher education right. and um i started doing stuff for them and once i started doing ad agency work with forge it really opened the door to other ad agencies and um you know my fir- very first tv commercial with an ad agency was for dragon naturally speaking and it was supposed to only be 15 second you know, social media videos. Yeah. Um, but they loved them and aired them uh, regionally at the Super Bowl that year. Oh, so cool. my, my first, you know, TV commercial that was really was supposed to be a web ad and turned into a TV commercial and ended up getting on the Super Bowl. So I had a lot of, I had the ability to say, yes, I made a Super Bowl commercial for Dragon Naturally Speaking. And it was true. And uh, that really you know, open the doors. And from there, it just sort of grew. But it never ends. I mean, you're always scrounging for new work. You're always building new client relationships. But uh, at, its, at its start, it was knocking down doors. Yeah. And it's smart that you went into the educational stuff there because Boston, for the listeners that don't know, Boston is essentially a giant campus. I think there's like yeah. <laughs> there's like 127 <laughs> co- colleges there. I mean, it's ridiculous. Um, yeah. And that's a, that's a huge source of income. For years, I was... Uh, shooting photos and doing videos for like MCPHS, which is a nursing school. I mean, it's it's one of those things that if you're trying to survive in that city, you're doing it. You have to do it because it's, absolutely it, it's there's old money in that city, so there's like like old white money, <laughs> and then there's college money in that city, <laughs> yeah. and then and then there's a there's hospital money. I mean, that's that's kind of how it works there, um, which is interesting. It also makes that city very cutthroat. Uh, as far as like bidding processes go and everything, because uh, everybody's scrounging for that for that work because that's the that's the work that basically pays your rent for the year. Uh, oh, absolutely! Yeah, yeah, you get a couple of schools, a hospital here and there. I mean, you're good, and um, they keep pumping out new things. And also, too, in Boston, um, you have a lot of like biotech. Yes. You have a lot of medical. You have hospitals. You have academic. Like, if you can get a few clients in those three areas. You're um you're you're pretty good. Yeah, that's not bad. That's not bad at all. Um, so uh, agency stuff is the is smart. Like this is an interesting uh, avenue to have this conversation with. Forming a relationship with an agency uh, is really important because they're the ones. If you're trying to get into the television world, they have been the ones that have been getting that work and that have been convincing the clients to pay that kind of money. Um, but yeah. it's all changing right now. Uh, oh yeah, it's the the marketplace is very difficult because um, a lot of these agencies are now buying out boutique. This is something that I discovered when I was there. They're buying out boutique production companies because the agencies themselves have to have three bids. A lot of times they have to go out and triple bid. And one of the snaky things that a lot of bigger agencies were doing is that they'd buy out a production company and then that production company would be one of their three bids. And that production company would suddenly come in the lowest and then they'd get that bid, which was interesting. Mm. Mm. Um, so that was going on for quite some time. I, I don't know if it still is. 
Um, but it's a it's a pretty cutthroat marketplace um, as far as that's concerned, and and it just seems like the budgets have been plunging. Um, and they and for me, it was like, what the fuck? Like he'd you'd have a potential job from Amazon, you know what I mean? And they come in and they're like, this has got this tiny budget. I'm like, it's fucking Amazon, dude. <laughs> like these are the guys droning to your house and that own like half the world right now. And this budget is only this. And, and it's because the, I think it's because the marketplace is so saturated with folks that, that do what we do, that the uh, customers are basically in control of the demand at this point. And they're able to, to put out these prices the way they want to. Do you agree with me or disagree? I do, yeah, and I I sort of saw an interesting shift. Like when I started, um, was pretty much right at the time where budgets plummeted, but I didn't know any better. Yeah. I mean, I didn't have those experiences of having you know three, four, five hundred thousand dollar TV ads and being flown all over the country to do things. It, it I just never had it. Yeah. So I was already able to work with super low budgets, and I came in where low budgets were a priority for people. So. I started getting a whole bunch of work that was super high budget for me, but nobody else wanted to touch it because they, they couldn't do it at that price. Um, and that converged at the same time with DSLR shooting and yeah. the rise of social media campaigns and marketing. So I really came at a very interesting crossroads. And what I found is, you know, over the past 10 years or so, um, a lot of ad agencies started to bring production in-house. not even, Yeah, buying small boutiques for sure. That I saw that happen too. But a lot of them would say, you know what, instead of going to hire um, a production company for our sub $100,000 projects, we're just going to hire some, you know, two or three people and build our own production company. I saw that happen and I'm horrible with dates, so I can't pinpoint the time frame. but sure. you probably saw that too. But what I saw was like, they did that, but then that team started getting oversaturated and what I saw is that they would either disband that team uh, or they would keep them but continue to hire production companies. So there was a weird point in the middle there where a lot of people in my position were starting to lose work to the internal ad agency production companies. But I've seen that go away over the past few years uh, because, like I said, they either oversaturated their own team or they just decided, you know what, we don't want to work with the same people on every project. We kind of liked being able to get multiple bids and find the best person for the job. Uh, that's what I've been noticing as a pretty major shift over the past few years. Yeah, and I'm going to be even more cynical about it. Um, <laughs> I also think it's because they ended up... Uh, I, I'm going to be really cynical about it. You can agree or disagree with me, but I, I feel like they started to prey on us to a certain extent where um, there was a lot of... It's tough. You got to make fucking rent, right? So when you're in this position, you're like, I'm going to do this job. I, I need to make rent. And the, there's a bunch of other people that are in that same line. Like, I need to make enough money to do this thing. And mm. so you get desperate. I saw this in music videos. So this, as a music video director, happened years ago. And then it started to happen with commercials, which was astounding to us because it was like, wow, this is where the money's supposed to be, is commercials. And you guys are pulling the same game that they did for the music world and in the music video community what they what they did is they uh decided that since no one was buying cds anymore since they weren't making money off of their uh their uh, traditional uh, business strategies which is like cd sales and and uh and all that sort of stuff they were like well we're not going to pay big bucks for it and they used the internet as that excuse so uh for labels it was like well it's not mtv so this is an mtv so we're not going to give you an mtv budget 
Um, and uh, which is absolute bullshit because when you do a video on YouTube, it's got uh, hundreds and thousands, sometimes millions of views more than MTV ever could have had. And it's so specifically marketed towards that demographic. So like when you make something on YouTube, you can, you can cram it with Google ads and everything else. You can cram it right into where it belongs and actually have a more successful campaign than you ever did on television with that yeah. stuff. Um, but they were able to use that uh, when talking to directors or contractors or production companies, and they'll say, well, it's for the internet. you know." And they started to do that with commercial stuff where um, in the past, uh, when you do like a national ad campaign, the production companies that are very successful, especially in Boston, because I worked, I'm, I was rep by Red Tree, and Red Tree was one of the bigger old school production companies that were there. And uh, uh, RJ, who runs that place, is a pro. Like, he's one of the best dudes I've ever worked with as far as executive producers go. Um, this guy's been around for years and years and years, and they do like giant Chevy ads, they do Hyundai ads, they do all that big stuff. And, yeah. and then the marketplace started to change for them. And I watched how it happened. And really, the, the production companies at his scale had the, the experience to say, look, here's how it works. We know that the clients uh, have a certain budget that they have to spend on this stuff, whether it's an agency or whether it's a company. We also know how much money that they're going to make based upon the products that we make for them. We know that uh, doing this billboard or doing this ad campaign will make them millions and millions of dollars. So when they start to come in and play this, uh, this is for the internet game, or we need some favors, or this is a really good opportunity for you. I mean, I don't know how many times you've been told that uh, doing a small commercial is the best opportunity for your career. <laughs> My whole life. Yeah. And it's consistent. They consistently do that. And so they start to run these things. And what they had done pr prior to us uh, working in this commercial world um, you had the form. You had the formation of unions, and the idea of a union is is a smart thing to me. An idea of a union is for protection of the workers. That's that's the the, the start of it. So when you do a lot of commercials, if you do films and shit like that, um, you'll get worked. You'll get worked to the grave. Essentially, it'll be um, look. We just need another hour, and next thing you know, you're doing 15 hours, 16 hours worth of work. Uh, you're clocking in all this time, um, and the unions at at the the origin of them, the unions were there for protection, where it was like, look, if you go over, you know, eight hours, uh, you have to pay a penalty. And if you don't serve lunch by a certain time, you have to pay a penalty. And if you do this, it's time and a half, and then this is overtime. And it isn't necessarily to be greedy about it. It was more to be like, plan your shit right. Plan your stuff right. If you, pl yeah. if you plan your shoot right, then you'll be able to stay within the confines of your budget, and you'll be able to stay within that. Um, I think that the unions got a little greedy and I think that the people running the unions got a little greedy and that always seems to be what happens in our capitalistic society. <laughs> um, so they started to add like a real bad vibe to it. Now production, like, um, agencies having to deal with the unions, having to deal with these production companies that were doing this, it would always be frustrating because their creative would be forced within the confines of what the unions were saying. And at, as a creative looking at it and not necessarily understanding what it's there for, you're looking at that going like, well, fuck you. I don't want to have to just do this in eight hours. And why, why do we only have to do this in nine hours? Because why can't we shoot for you know, 12 or 14? And why should I pay more for that? 
And so there was this real lack of communication, it seemed like, between both sides of it. And so when they had the opportunity, very similar to what happened in the music industry, where it was like, okay, so now we're going to make YouTube ads. The, mm. There was a loophole there because the union stuff was all set up for TV and broadcast. And because the people running the unions really weren't forward thinking, <laughs> they were just sort of like, well, we don't care about little bullshit, you know, internet stuff. So yep. all we're doing is taking care of that. And so then that was the loop. And so then they were able to get in there and say, okay, cool. Well, this is just an internet ad. In the beginning, it was. In the beginning, it was just, you know, very inexpensive little things that there wasn't a budget for because the clients didn't understand the reach or the power that they had. But then when you fast forward, when we're doing stuff for Hulu and Hulu's NBC and we're doing commercial ads for Hulu and stuff, and then that still falls within the, the internet broadcast stuff. That there that that's that's essentially the same thing as broadcast, and so that loophole, at least for me, when I started doing commercials, that loophole started to get real shady. Mm. Um, and then in there, you're just like, I'm doing. Literally, the only difference here is is that I'm not making any money, because it, I use I ran a production company where we had to. I don't know if you do the same thing, but I ran a production company where we put in a bid and we were responsible for the funds, and then we had to do it all. And you go into that bidding process and it's like, well, I'll do it. I'll throw the editing in for free because I have, I have the edit machines or I'll throw this in for free and you do all that stuff. And at the end of the day, you start looking at it from the mile high view and you're just like, dude, I put in four or five weeks worth of work and I got paid for two days. Mm. And that, that was really where the, because your gaffers and grips aren't going to change. They're, 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 they'll give you a discounted rate, but they're still like, you know, 350 a day 400 a day 500 a day you know um they don't screw with they don't they won't change their prices it's you that change your prices man i got off on a fucking i got off on a tie right there and you haven't said a thing (laughs) well that's true i mean i I think (laughs) 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 no get up preach get on the soapbox and go for it i mean i think what you're saying is uh, it's true. I mean, we we've had similar experiences like that for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, there was a lot there. I'm trying to even think what to comment on um, well, because it's dangerous too <laughs> to, to comment on this stuff. But I mean, how? Let me ask you this. Let me let me form that in a phrase uh, in a form of a question. Um, <laughs> knowing knowing all that stuff that I just unloaded. Um, how are you surviving? Like, are you just keeping your overhead down? Like, how are you surviving as, um, as a company in that, in that world? I mean, it's been very, I, I've been extremely cautious with things like getting an office space and having too much overhead and employees versus freelancers. And I've just, I've played it very, very safe. And, um, you know, I think there's an argument, uh, there's an argument to be had that playing it too safe doesn't allow you to grow as fast. I can see that. Um, You know, it was only recently, like very recently, that I even put a production fee in my budgets. And when I first started, it was like 3%. And I built it up to maybe 5%. I mean, it's just, I am, the currency for me is, uh, well, not, not all of it. I mean, I definitely, I, in the past couple of years, five years, let's say, I am now feeling like I'm being paid for the amount of time I'm putting in the project. Mm-hmm. I still feel like there are occasions when I will shave off profits 
to have a better camera or a better lens set or a better location or an extra day. I'm still doing that. Um, not all the time, but when a project comes around that I really love and I'm really excited about, I will, I will do that. I was going to say gladly, but that's a lie. I, I will do that if I, if I have to do it, because if I know the project is going to be worthy of being on the real, um, a way to get new work from it, I'll definitely do that. Um, but I think what it is, is I'm just working at really, um, sharp, uh, really thin margins. Yeah. And, um, everybody's getting paid their regular rates. No one's being asked for a favor. No one's being asked for reduced rates. Um, oftentimes my 10 hour day includes lunch. So it's really a nine hour day. Um, and I pay people anytime over 10 hours. So we're, everybody's being paid, but I will definitely make the decision sometimes to be like, you know what? I'm just going to throw in a day of editing for this because I know we could do it quickly at my office because I want to have, you know, you know, set of cook primes or something like that. I will do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I don't know if that's ever going to end. You know, I, I really don't know. I mean, I would love to see, you know, BC media productions become one of these big, large, you know, gigantic Boston based production companies that do super high end national TV work. Uh, and that would be amazing, but like, I'm still kind of bidding on that stuff. And when I win them, we're still doing it like with the team that we have and it's still getting done. And it's like, do you need that much overhead for the type of work that we're doing? Um, and most of the time the answer is no. So I'm, because of that, I'm able to do things less expensive than others. And I do think that that is what keeps us so busy. Mm, that's good. That's good. Um, and I think this is good. I think this is good. I'm going to play the, I'm going to play the devil's advocate. <laughs> I know, I know what you're going to say, but go ahead. Um, well, I mean, it's so interesting because when I worked with the larger production companies that when we first got into it, and this was mm, 15 years ago or something like that. Um, when we first got into it, uh, they were charging for production fees uh, upwards of 30%. Oof, so it's that like sounds fun. Thirty percent production fees, and then you look at that and you go, "Huh, you know, does that does that feel a little steep?" But then you look at where they're spending that money. So I remember when we were doing our production company, we had to up our insurance policy. So mm. we literally were using newer lenses, we were using bigger stuff, we were shooting in like uh, bigger places, and so we had to up our insurance policy to like a five million dollar insurance policy a year mm. and between that and, and workers comp and everything else uh you know our bill per year was almost six seven grand for insurance alone yep and so when you start to factor that in you're like okay where's that money come from then you know at some point you need to have or we needed to have an office so we had an office with it with edipays we had a place that we can have clients come in to have meetings um, and then that's another set of overheads. Um, and then uh, uh, working with uh, freelancers. So for quite some time, we were able to do that whole, this is a freelancer, this is what a freelance situation is. Um, but now the federal government is starting to crack down on, on what they define freelancers as. And mm -hmm. so like there's a, a new thing now, I, I forget the specifics on, I'm going to screw it all up, but um, they're considering if you're hired what is it? If you're hired for a specific skill, you're an employee for a project now. So like that, it's actually changing how you're supposed to do that. And then you have to have workers comp for everybody. You have to be paying into all that kind of stuff. Um, and 
I think they started to crack down in, in Boston a bit because Boston had the tax incentive. And once the tax yep. incentive shows up, then the government starts to like start sniffing in there. Like, you know, people are making too much money. You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. So that becomes a, a desperation. And the, we found, or at least I found working in that city, that the more that I needed to grow, the less money I was able to make for myself. And I spent so much time in that city trying to do it the correct way and trying to grow the, the, the way that I thought was the right way. And I, I, I literally made no money. Like mm. for years and years and years, I made enough for rent, but I felt like I was just consist- consistently battling the system with it and then throw into the marketplace that there are a lot of young uh, production companies that were starting there. Um, and they, they weren't at that level yet. They hadn't got to that level where it's like, hey, I need to have a bigger production or a bigger insurance policy. Um, and look at me going real deep here. I'm also going to say that a lot of these dudes that were getting into it were like trust fund kids. So they mm-hmm. suddenly had access, like their parents bought them a ton of fucking gear. You know what I mean? And it's like, we're going to open a production company. And then they did that for a year or two years um, and really started to underbid the market and bring the value of everything down in that marketplace, um, which I know for a fact hurt a lot of the larger production companies. Those production companies had to start to lay people off and start to to close it down. Um, and then those young guys hit a point like two, three years out, three, four years out, where they started to come to me and go, and like, how do you, they demand this now and they need this now and they need that now. And I go, I don't know how you're going to be able to afford that because you haven't been charging enough for that. So it's tough to, to grow past a certain point in that marketplace right now. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. I don't even think that's devil's advocate. I feel like that is what we're talking about because it's it's really tough to grow unless you... St- and the thing is for me, it's like, I never feel like I was undercutting other production companies because I didn't know what their bids were. My bids were always what I could do it for. And oftentimes, they I was even told what the number is. That, that I'm seeing more and more too. People will be like, hey, here's the creative, here's the budget, what can you do? And the bids are less, this is how much it'll cost, but more, this is how I will allocate those funds. This is, this is, you know, how I would spread things out. And, you know, because your budget is X amount, you can't have an Alexa, but you can't have this or that. So I feel like, um, where, what the thing that I'm not doing that I probably should be doing is a larger production fee to pay for all of those things, which certainly do get paid for, um, you know, insurance and workers comp and all that. It is expensive, um, and I, you know, it is being paid for, but I think I probably should have a larger production fee for anything that kind of comes around, little things along the way, problems that you have to solve along the way, miscellaneous issues, just having, um, you know, a bigger net, I think would be nice for some projects. Well, the other thing I noticed too, was that when I was there, most production companies or most people in the business don't like to talk about, they, they're afraid to talk internal. So there's a lot of younger production companies that were afraid to actually talk about what their bids were and how much they bid and what they put in. Um, And one of the things that I tried to do before I left there was have open communication with a lot of the newer places um, because I would, so we would get a call, right? So I'd get a call to do a job and the, um, the agency would say to us, you have this much money. So they might come to me and say, you know, we have 60 grand. And so they come in and they go, hey, we have this little thing, 60 grand. We want you to do this for 60 grand. Great. So then I go through the process of pitching it, doing all that stuff, writing a budget, putting it together. 
Then they're like, we're just out to bid to a couple of other people. Mm. Then uh, we don't get the job. So the job goes away. They come back to us. And they go, we really liked your pitch. We liked everything. But we went with these, with these other folks. Now, what the agency doesn't know is that I know those other folks. So then I would just call them up and go, hey, I hear that you got this job. And they'd go, yeah, cool. And I go, we were in it for 60 grand. How much did you, did you take it for? And they go, oh, we did it for 15. And it's like, what? The, yeah. the disparity there was so fucking huge. And it was like they had 60. They had 60. And you guys did it for 15. Why did you guys do it for 15? Well, because we... we, we we've never done this before and we don't think that we're good enough for this. And this is a really good opportunity for us. And it's like whoever that production man or that producer is at that agency just made in big with their boss because they literally brought that in at, at less than like, what is that? One third of what their budget was for that. Mm. Um, and I think that a lot of the folks, uh, they, they would play that game, especially the production companies where they didn't want us to communicate with each other because um, that would destroy their bidding process. And it, I, it's a very cynical view, but it's something that I discovered early on. And then the side effect of that, which was so fascinating, was that these people would come in from these, um, whether they're clients or production com- or um, uh, agencies, would come in and say, look, do us this favor. We know that this is really cheap and it is a lot of money. And, and if you do this, it's going to be great. You'll be in with us. And so they... Uh, have you come in and you do it really discounted with the idea that you're going to form a relationship with these people and that it'll be a long-running relationship and you'll be able to go from there. Um, I, for a fact, worked for a larger company. I'm not going to give any companies' names away, but I worked for a larger company where uh, we were in the bidding process for a bigger job. I think it was like a Super Bowl spot. It was like a bigger gig. And uh, they were looking for other bids out there. They were looking for other people to bid with. And I was like, well, you should go with this other company. This, these guys that I know that are really great, uh, put a bid in with them. And they're like, oh, why would we give them that money? They do, they do only like our small stuff. They don't do the big mm. stuff. And it was like, what? And hearing this and knowing that other company and knowing what they were going with, it was like, no, fuck you, man. And they're like, well, no, we have enough money to go to Fincher. You know what I mean? Like, this is Fincher time. And then it, I, it, it occurred to me that it was really just about names. It was about uh, who these agency people wanted to hang out with. Oftentimes working in Boston, it was about whether or not they wanted to stay in Boston or whether or not they wanted to travel, whether or not they were going to do it out here in Los Angeles because they wanted to come out to LA for three weeks or go somewhere else. So all those were huge fucking factors while working in that city and hearing that and understanding that that was the case. And then I would turn to a lot of the younger production places and say, do not do this for fucking Nike. Do not do this for Adidas. Do not do this for these companies that our goal when we get into the commercial world is to finally get them as clients because then maybe I can go from being a single guy that lives in an apartment with five people to being able to afford to live in a home and have kids and have a wife and shit. And if you guys are giving those clients stuff for pennies, for a third or a fraction, a 16th of what you should be getting paid on that, um, you're just destroying the fucking industry. And that was such a really hard, difficult battle that led me down this very cynical path <laughs> when, I <was> there, <laughs> when I was there in that city. <laughs> I love that you haven't lost your Boston edge, yeah. your East Coast uh, grit. Dude, you know, it's... Uh, it, it, 
it's just you go through the you go through the paces and you go through the paces for so long and then you work so hard um, and you try to make this stuff work and then at the end of the day I think it just comes down to um, capitalism and at the end of the day it comes down to American business mm. and as you examine this stuff it's always bottom dollar um, I don't know if you've heard the stories about what they do at Arnold but. I, have no, you, uh, no. Okay. I, I mean, I guess, I guess not. I, so Arnold's a publicly traded company. So as soon as they went public, as soon as they be, they had a board of directors and they had all that sort of stuff, it's about profit. It's about projecting profit. And so Arnold's one of the biggest agencies. It's the biggest agency in Boston. It's one of the biggest agencies in the company. Yeah. And uh, they would have um, projected um, profit for you know uh, the different terms for the year. I forget what they call that. Um, for the different terms of the year. Uh, and if they didn't reach that profit margin, they would literally go to the floor and fire an entire floor of people. Jesus. Yeah. So they'd walk on the floor and fire a whole floor full of creatives. And so if you look on LinkedIn, you'll go through LinkedIn and you'll see hundreds of people that are listed as uh, Arnold creatives and Arnold producers and all that stuff uh, because they just turn it around so fucking quick. And they just go wow. in there and they, and they fire you right the fuck out. I never heard that. Yeah, dude. They called it uh, Bloody Wednesday or something like that was one of the terms. It was like quarterly? Yeah, it was quarterly. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. So they would have to make their their, their quota. And if you look at, uh, uh, I feel really bad for um, creative directors because the lifespan of a creative director, you don't make it past. Like if you're in your 30s, if you're in your fucking mid-30s as a creative director, it's a, it's a miracle. Mm. Uh, because... Uh, the the idea they I think what they do is they say look we want the youth you know it's important if, since we're marketing towards this demographic we need to have the youth in here for that demographic but it also coincides with how much they pay them for salary which is mm. fascinating too so look at this dark episode wow <laughs> <laughs> well yeah you, you like hurt my heart with that story about the company that bid at 15 yeah dude when they well did they know that they were given 60 or were they no, just asked to bid they just asked to bid and then okay and what you do is you lean into your insecure they lean into your insecurities yeah so it's just like you really don't have this on your reel this is a really good opportunity for you to have this on your reel blah 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 and then i don't think they're all that sinister i think that a lot of times uh, companies hire um desperate people like us. So let's say that I suddenly, you know, had two kids and I had a mortgage over my head and I'm like, fuck, I can't do this freelance thing anymore and I need to make some money and I'm really desperate. These companies are like, well, come be an internal producer. And mm. if you will come be an internal producer and we'll give you a salary and you can depend on that salary. And that that's the thing, but you you're on salary. So essentially you're just fucking working all times of the day and you're overworked and a lot of people that took those jobs early on were people that couldn't figure out um, how to do it in the freelance world. And it's a lot of those people that took those jobs didn't have the experience in the freelance world. So uh, when their boss comes to them and says, we have you know $20,000 for this commercial, do you think it's enough? That producer goes, yeah, sure. Because they don't want to lose their gig. They don't want to be in that situation. So they're like, yeah, it's perfect. Wow. And then they yeah. call people like us up and they go on the phone, they go, so here's the budget we have, we have 20,000. And I'm like, where the fuck did you come up with this number? <laughs> like, how does any of this math fucking work? Like, this is too, well, that's what we have. We have $20,000 and so you have to make it work within $20,000. And you're just like, Jesus Christ, man. Talk about not even be able to, to charge 
uh, what I need as a percentage to pay for the insurance that you require and everything else. But you've got 12 actors in this script. You know what I mean? And so then, then that's part of the bidding process where you have these producers that don't want to seem to their bosses that they don't know what the fuck they're doing. Yep. Um, and so then they're like, well, we'll find someone that can do it. And then that also plays into that, that game of, of shrinking the prices out there. Yep. Absolutely. The other thing too, that is, um, I think the thing that annoys me even more than companies undercutting, you know, I hate saying undercutting because if that's what they want to bid at, then that's fine. And they're going to learn the hard way that they can't afford that and eventually develop a bad relationship. And, you know, it will be a bad experience for everybody. And sometimes you need that to learn a lesson. Um, but the thing that annoys me the most, honestly, is being asked to bid on a project and you know you're only being asked because you're the third of a triple bid. They don't really want you. Yep. And they're using your number to put someone else's company's number down. I know it happens yep. and I hate it. I think that is so much sketchier and so much worse. And I've, I know for sure we've been in those situations in the for past. Sure. For and sure. And it's annoying because it's like, I know you don't want us to do this. And like, if there are two, you know, you ask who are the other companies? If there are two major, super expensive, high-end ad agency, uh, high-end production companies working on that, and then they're asking BC Media Productions, I know we're just the third bit. Yep. Like, and it's almost like I don't want to go through the effort of creating a director's treatment and pitching this hard and doing all of that because I know for sure they're not going to hire us. And I know they just are using us for a number. And I really don't like that. I, I think that's when the triple bids become a real problem because if you know who you want to hire, just go to them. Just yep. go. Hey guys, it's Mike from the future. <laughs> uh, if you uh, haven't guessed, I recorded a lot of these episodes all during that same week. And then I have to jump on right about now to do uh, the current sponsor reads. So this is the deal. It's time to show the love to the people that uh, keep the show going. Um, and I just want to thank everybody that's listening to the show because you guys have done everything I've asked, which is really wonderful. Um, and, and I don't know if you know of podca how podcasts work and how sponsors work, but essentially they track clickable links. That's it. So if you guys, and I have a lot of people writing to me saying like, I'd love to support the show. I just don't make a lot of money. I get it, man. I'm not asking for you guys to reach into your wallets. No, that's why this show's for free, right? I don't expect you guys to dig into the, that funds, those funds that you're going to save up to make your proof of concept with, you know? Um, but I will say this. If you want to support the show, then just click through on the sponsor links that are listed underneath this episode. All you have to do is click on them. And if you really want to support the show, click on each one of them. Just go through and check out their stuff. I mean, each I, I handpick the sponsors for the show because I respect them. I love what they make. I use what they make. But more importantly, I know that you will dig what they make. So it's important. Click through. All right. So first up, good buddies, 
at Puget Systems. They have been with me for years now. I love these guys. I have been using their computers for years now. I edited 12KM on a Puget PC. I edited Who's There on a Puget PC. I've cut Dale Strong, a bunch of different commercials. I do all of my work on a Puget System. I love it to pieces. And we now live in a time period where you don't have to own a Mac to be a professional filmmaker. Remember that weird marketing ploy where if you want to be a pro, you need to have a MacBook Pro? Well, that doesn't exist anymore, guys. Uh, and after they left us behind with a lot of their updates and bullshit where I couldn't open old projects and stuff like that, we've all made the jump. And now, if you look at what's coming out with those guys, they're trying to get us back because they realize that the artists should control the products, right? I've been saying this since the beginning. This is why I love Puget Systems. These guys have always been artist first, customer first. They build custom-made systems that suit your needs. So if you're a filmmaker, if you're a photographer, if you're a music producer, uh, hell, if you're just a gamer and you wanna build a top-of-the-line system, save some money doing so, uh, and you're not savvy enough to build your own PC, uh, and maybe you are, and maybe you want to find out what's the hottest and latest new ways of doing the configurations. PugetSystems.com actually releases all their benchmark tests and stuff so that you can use that stuff to build your own PC as well. So they're really not about getting your loot, man. They're about supporting the people that love PCs. They're about supporting this movement to use PCs again as artists. So go to PugetSystems.com, check them out. You can select your own baseline package based upon the software you use. So if you're a Premiere user, you can click Premiere and they'll suggest a baseline package. But the thing that's so great about these guys is that they're actual human beings. This is not a giant, giant company. This is a very manageable company. You actually talk to real people. I know all the guys. I've been to their offices. They're out in Washington. They're amazing. They're fucking great dudes. And they want to build systems that work for you. So you can actually reach out to them and tell them what your specific needs are and they'll suggest a system for you based upon that. Super awesome. Talk about real person customer service, guys. PugetSystems.com. Go check them out. Tell them that Mike sent you. Click the link below. Here we go. Click the clickable link below and they will know that I sent you and they will continue to be a sponsor on the show and I will continue to be able to afford to make this podcast. That's how it works. All right. PugetSystems.com. All right. Next up, good buddies over at Quasar Science. Quasar Science, one of the coolest parts about uh, technology recently, and most of the people think it's about the new cameras. Mm -mm. It's about lighting, LED lighting. LED lighting has advanced so rapidly over the past five, six, seven years uh, that it changes the way everything looks. I don't know if you've noticed how like really crisp bright and colorful and saturated a lot of the tv shows that you watch are a lot of the commercials that you watch are that's because of the change in light technology right led stuff has been really cool the advancements on that are fascinating and one of the biggest companies one of the ones at the forefront of all this stuff is quasar science these guys build tubes light tubes led light tubes for different configurations for different needs. So you can get like a rainbow LED tube where you can dial in any color of the rainbow into this uh, unit. So remember how you had to buy gels all the time at $15 like a, for a two by two sheet? Uh, you don't have to do that anymore. You can dial in all those numbers, get the colors that you love. Uh, Quasar Science, go to quasarscience.com, check them out. 
I have a bunch of different tubes from them. I have a brand new kit that has like a two foot tube, a one foot tube. I think I have a four foot in there too. Um, really cool, these are bicolor tubes, so they will shoot either daylight or tungsten, um, and they're battery powered. And the thing that I really dig about them is they have like these cool little magnets on the back, so you can just slap them right on a C-stand. Really cool tubes, very lightweight, very small footprint, don't need a lot of storage space for them. Uh, so they're perfect if you're just a videographer or if you're someone that just needs a kit uh, to get started. So go check them out, quasarscience.com. Click through below. I'll say that over and over again. Uh, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to give her a read today. She didn't pay for this episode, but I love her shit. So mycallsheet.com. Uh, are you a producer? Are you a filmmaker? Are you someone that has to wrangle a crew? You have to put together your team. You got to tell them where to go. You got to let them know what the schedule for the day is, right? Call sheets. That's what call sheets are for. For those of you who don't work in the business, you're basically making a scheduled sheet with a location and a time for the crew to show up at. Now, the big problem is, is that when you're doing call sheets, you're usually running those out as PDFs, right? And you're putting them on emails. And then when you have to do changes, you're responding to that email chain and throwing that change in there. But sometimes if you're doing multiple changes, people get confused. Which call sheet is the most recent one? Why bother with that? And that's the genius of mycallsheet.com. It does it all online. You can sync that stuff up on an app. You can update your call sheet whenever you want. And if everybody's looking at that one specific place for their call sheet, they're getting the most recent corrections. They're getting the most recent information. So really cool. Uh, go to mycallsheet.com and check them out uh, I love them and uh, the woman that runs the place she's an actress she's a model so she knows the deal uh, very small little company getting started really great app check them out callsheet.com alright next up cool one of the few companies that I have to read content from which I enjoy and you know what I'm going to break from it let's talk about our good buddies over at musicbed.com okay what is musicbed.com okay so if you're a director or producer and you're doing a commercial or you're an editor and you're doing an edit uh, let's say you're, you're cutting a horror movie right one of the worst things to do is to try to cut your content without music music is 50% of the emotions on screen right and how can you pace that person walking down the hallway without a temp track without some sort of music to go with it and if you're working with a composer, which I always suggest to do, um, it's really tough to get stuff from that composer on, its, on, a, on a very small production. You know, if you're talking like a commercial, you're talking like one of your short films and you really don't have a budget for that. So then what is our next choice? We usually turn to stock music and most stock music sucks. Let's just be straight up about it. Right? Whenever you go and listen to it, it always sounds like something else, but it sounds chintzy as fuck. And it makes sense because for a lot of these artists, they're just gonna bang out whatever they think works, whatever they think is gonna fucking sell. And the good shit they'll save for something else, right? I always feel that way. Whenever I have to hunt for a track, whenever I deal with a client that's like, oh, I've only got like 500 bucks for music. I'm like, fuck, this is going to suck. I spent so much time shooting really great looking footage. But now I have to cut it to some bullshit audio track. It's the 
worst. You know what I'm talking about. But I found musicbed.com. Musicbed is so much different. They work with composers. They have really interesting music, really fascinating artists. I just did a post uh, today. Uh, and today is what? Uh, Wednesday. So I did a post last week, if you're listening to the show, um, about him uh, showcasing the actual hard material that they sent me. They actually send out like really beautifully printed magazine booklets on all the artists that they rep or represent or host at Musicbed. Um, and so there's some amazing artists to collaborate with, uh, to work with, uh, great songs to download with these guys. Uh, it really sort of changed the way I process stock music. Pretty crazy. So let me get to the read here. Let me do my job, okay? So it sucks when you're getting bogged down in the editing process and you're trying to track down a soundtrack for your film. I've been there and so is the team at Musicbed. In fact, that's the entire reason why they built their platform. They've made it easier than ever for you to find the song that you're looking for with intuitive and easy to use browse and search. Amazing indie artists and bands and incredible composers like Ryan Tomert and Chad Lawson. There's some really fantastic fucking artists here, guys. I just went through their stuff yesterday and there's some that I'm gonna to try to get on the show. Think about that. The roster is growing every day with tens and thousands of songs ranging from cinematic and electronic to indie rock and hip hop. And with their, and with either their single song licensing or subscriptions that give you unlimited downloads, there's something for every type of project for every type of filmmaker. Mm -hmm. To create your free account and learn more, go to musicbed.com. Plus, as an in love with the process listener, they're giving you one month of subscription for free. So it's super smart for you to do this right now if you're working on a project because you can get a month's subscription for free because you listen to this fucking show. <laughs> or they'll give you 20% off a single song license. Just enter the promo code the process when you check out. Once again, enter the promo code the process, all one word, when you check out. I'll put the link below. Click through on that link. Go surf through it. You mindlessly are shuttling your way through an Instagram thing. For the love of God, click the link and go there and let these people know that you're fucking listening to the show. Please! <laughs> um, cool. All right. So who else? To, who, what else? Maybe? Oh, yeah. You know what? I didn't give them a read last time, but I'm going to give them a read this time. My good buddies over at Rule Boston Camera. If you're an independent filmmaker and uh, you're finding it incredibly difficult, or DP, and you're finding it incredibly difficult to keep up with the newest, latest gear on the market, you just spent about you know $35,000 on a camera that is no longer the hot ticket that producers do not want to use anymore, or the codecs have changed, whatever the fuck it is. Why buy that stuff when you can make a great relationship with your local rental house? I highly suggest this, highly suggest this. Make friends with a local rental house. And I'm actually looking for one out here in LA. So if you have suggestions on your favorite rental house out here in Los Angeles, send me a note. But if you're on the East Coast and above New York City, the best place to rent gear is at Rule Boston Camera. I love these guys. They're good friends of mine. They are my longest running relationship with a vendor. I have been working with them for 18 years. Think about that. Uh, the cool thing about them is that they have all the latest and greatest newest gear and equipment uh, for rental with them. 
Super easy to set up an account. They make it very easy for you to get your insurance and everything that you need to do to get the gear in your hands. Uh, they teach you, they train you on all the new stuff. So if you wanna know how to use that new Alexa, or if you wanna know how to make that Movi work for you, they will teach and train you on how to do it. Super rad. And the cool thing about going with a rental house that is local to your production and not doing one of those mail order ones is that if the gear goes down, they will ship you out something. They will drive it out to your set. Talk about an insurance policy for whoever producer that you're working with. I promise you that even if the gear goes down, we'll get it back up and running. Mm -hmm. So think about that. If you're on the East Coast, if you're in Boston, check out Rule Boston Camera. All right. Uh, good rant and rave on that stuff. I, you know what, guys? And like I've always said, continue to support the show. Please, if you're, if you're listening to this on iTunes, if you're listening to this on Spotify, rate the show. Give us a good rating. Leave us a review. It helps us. It totally does. All these little things help us. And here's the cool thing. You've been sending me lists of people that you want on the show, and some of those people are pretty high up there, right? Large celebrities. Their PR people only give a shit if the show's rated well, and that's in your hands. So I need you guys to leave some reviews. I need you guys to rate the show. I need you guys to tell people about the show. Uh, you need to be involved, right? Because I give you this for free. You're not paying for it. So all I ask is to tell people. That's it. Anyway, I love you. <laughs> Let's get back into this crazy rant and rave session that I did a few weeks ago with Ben. Poor son of a bitch who had no idea what he was in for. A lot of people don't realize that when you do a larger, when you do a larger commercial um, treatment, it takes a lot of fucking work. Like I know production Ugh. companies, I know production companies that I work with that pay to have their treatments made. I know production companies that have paid upwards of $5,000 to, ha to have their treatments made. And when they ask for a treatment from you, at least with me, it was like a five fucking day thing. It was like, I got to pull images. I got to go through yep. and write this stuff. And that's five days unpaid. And they yep. don't pay a fee for that. Whereas if you hire a mechanic or a plumber to look at your car, like I need my car to be uh, inspected so that I can get my insurance back, or I need to have an inspection done in this house, they will charge you just to show up. They will charge you to be there. You'll, you'll get a $100 fee just for the inspection process. And... Further down that, it's only in our business that they're allowed to do this shit. Further down that, let's pretend like my car shit the bed, right? And I'm like, cool, I got some cash. I need to go buy a new car. But I know that I want a fucking BMW. But I have enough money for a used Honda. Can you imagine me walking into a BMW dealership with a budget for a used Honda going, this is a great opportunity for you? <laughs> you want me as a customer, believe me. You want to have the relationship with me. And tell you what, good news, I've got enough money for used Honda. The people at that BMW dealership are going to go, get the fuck out. Like, they're, 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 you out of there, man. Only in our business 
are they allowed to get away with this shit? Isn't it true in all artistic businesses, though? I mean, it's a broader discussion of how artists just in general, people don't understand the value of artistic you know, creativity. They, they don't understand it. I mean, you're going to see this in music. Before I was in any video production, I was doing, you know, I was in a band, a lead singer in a band for like eight years. And yeah. so I went from a job where it's, you know, 99% of, 99% effort, 1% income. And I, you know, slowly balanced that out over time through, through video. But I never had like, I, I've never had a regular steady job. I, so I don't know what that experience right. is like to know what you make each week. It's right. never happened. Neither, so, neither have I. <laughs> so I've, I've always, I've just bounced around from one non-paying passion to, uh, at the beginning, another. I mean, it's not that way now, but like at the beginning, it certainly was. And I think it's just, I think it's just people don't understand the cost of art. Mm-hmm. They just don't get it. Mm-hmm. And then I think it falls on the artist too, right? Because then yes. oftentimes we're just insecure about it. Where it's like, mm, am I? Can I charge this much money? Like yeah. when you start your your career, you don't know. Like there isn't like a level up. You know what I mean? Where you just hit a certain level and it's like, bring. You know, it's like level five. You can now charge this amount of money for your shit. Like there isn't a, a set set of rules, especially in the wild west that is small production company stuff right now. There isn't a set of set of rules. So you, that's that insecurity that you have, and I think. That's the difference between us and that car dealership. That car dealership has no insecurities on how much they charge <laughs> yeah. for a vehicle. Um, but I don't know how many of my friends and my peers and people that were working in that town would hit their their, their bit and they'd just go like, I don't know. And it's like, oh, that's so fucking dangerous. And, and part of the reason why you don't know is that we're not all communicating. And so mm. as creatives, we're not all letting you in. I will tell you in a heartbeat, and, and I, for the past, you know, or for the last four years that I was in Boston, I, I told everybody, you call me up, I'll tell you what I bid. You call mm-hmm. me up and I'll tell you what I got paid. I did That's that. That's awesome. No one does that. You have to. I, I mean, I got hired to do Bose stuff. I got hired to do Sam Adams stuff. You call me up, I'll tell you what I got paid for a day rate. Because they need to understand that that exists. They need to understand that that's what you're supposed to get paid for these things. They need to understand that that's what they can afford. And they still talked me down to get what I got off the deal. Yeah, You know what I mean? We saw that in music videos, like I said before, where I would have, in the music video world, we started to work with label, uh, with uh, director reps, which was a joke in the end of that world for a lot of it. Why? Uh, because- I'm, curi- I'm very curious about that because I've never been repped by anybody. I've never really had management, anything like that. I've sort of all, I mean, I, I have just done it all myself, but there is a part of me that thinks like, what would the world be like for me if I had a director <laughs> rep? Like, what does that, what is that experience? I, I, I really don't know anything about it. I, from the, for the film world, it's imperative. For the film world, it's awesome. Like be, having an agent, um, I'm rep by UTA, and then having a management, they're fucking great. And they're really good because they have the relationship. So I can literally get walked into Paramount and sit with an exec with a phone call. Like that's, that's, what, you're, that's what you're paying them for. That's the 10%. They, each of them, so like your manager gets 10% of what you do, your agent gets 10%, your lawyer gets 5%. So right off the top, 25% comes off your shit. But it, do you pay them for their time other than their commission? No. So they get paid based on projects. So like if a project comes nice. through and we get paid, then they get it. So it's a good investment on their part as well. Yeah. So you feel like you're in it together. 
uh, having that stuff for the movie world has changed my opinion on that because it's been amazing. Let's talk about the commercial world. Let's talk about the, the music video world. So uh, in the music video world, we were asked to be repped. I'm not going to give any names. We were asked to be repped by this person. She came in and she was like, hey, look, we'd love to take you in. And it, it sort of blew our minds because we were young and we had done like a bunch of like heavy metal stuff. And the next thing you know, we're writing for like Ozzy Osbourne and we're, you know, doing big stuff. And mm-hmm. so then we get called by her and she's like, I'm going to rep you. It's like, oh, fuck yes. That's great. Because in your head, you're like, she has the relationship with the musicians and the labels. So now I don't have to deal with that. Now I can have someone that is doing that sort of stuff. And so uh, she comes in and she's like, okay, great. Uh, I have a bunch of different projects and I want you guys to write on these projects. You guys would be perfect for these projects. And you're like, oh, fuck yeah. And then you do that long process, week long digging through, coming up with new ideas, researching the artist, doing all this stuff, putting together these intricate treatments, and then sending those treatments out. Uh, What she didn't realize is that because of my business partner at the time, his relationship in the music industry, we were friends with all these artists and acts. And so um, what she would do is she'd call us up and go, uh, so yeah, we've got 20 grand to do a music video, and um, they love your work. And they would like to uh, have you submit a treatment. And you're like, okay, great. So you do the hustle. You send it in. You don't get the job. Uh, well, what we, what we did is she would contact us for that and go, we have a video for 20 grand. And then the band would contact us. And the mm. band management would contact us and go, we have 60. And mm. it's just like, where did that money go? Where did, hmm. that, where did that cash go? You know, and then I would talk to bands all the time and, and, and be like, okay, so how does it work with you guys? You guys want to do a music video. And bands were just like, yeah, it's time we have to do a music video. The label says that we have to do two videos for this album. And that's going to either help us sell fucking CDs at the time or it's going to help us with the tour. So we have to do two videos. And the label wants to stack them. So they're going to offer you a price for two. If you're lucky, it's like now it's like 25 grand for two videos, right? And they're just like, it's great. You can shoot them all at the same time. It's like, fuck, the ideas are completely different, but okay, fine. Uh, so, <laughs> two music videos, let's do that. Uh, and I, I, I would ask them, I go, well, when, when you're in that position, how did you find directors? And they're like, well, these, these music video reps would just show up with like 40 treatments and they just stack them down in front of us. And I'm like, what? I was stacked Jesus. in with 40 other treatments. And they're like, yeah, we don't know who these fucking people are. We don't know them from a hole in the wall. And you're going through reading these treatments and you get through like treatment number five and you're like, fuck this. Who knows someone that does music videos? Oh, I got a friend that we toured with that does. Cool, call them on the phone. Mm. And, and so when you started to realize that or when we started to realize that, when I started to realize that, dealing with this rep i'm like what the fuck and then you go and and then you understand how desperate that rep is where that rep's like i need this loot so i'm gonna spray them with as many talented treatments as i possibly can because i'm gonna get this job no matter what yeah and for for a long period of time those reps would have relationships with the management or the label and they would have a deal like a backdoor handshake where it's like i get all your videos and I'll, I'll provide to you the most amazing talent that I have out of my, my, my roster. Because that term, roster, oof, I can go down a dark hole with that term, roster, and what that fucking means. <laughs> um, and so that, that's the music video world. 
Did you find similarities in commercial? Uh, to a certain extent. I think, yeah. I think the difference between the commercial and that, like, uh, at least when we started to get repped by people, Red Tree was always really good with us. Um, but you are put on a roster, you know, and um, these days rosters are very loose. So um, I think in the past when you were on a roster at a production company, part of why that production company would charge such a large fee is that that would go towards uh, research and development. And if you were a director on that roster, it was very easy for you to turn to the, your production company and say, hey, look, let's do a couple of spec spots because you need to sell me. You want, we want to get those fucking Chevy ads. So let's spend some money and do some specs. And then you go through the process of building up your reel, doing those specs, and the, how can you afford to do those specs based upon that, uh, that fee that you're charging? You know, so you start charging 30%, then you can start to do that research and development. A lot of people are like, well, that 30% goes towards his Mercedes. That's, that's bullshit, man. That 30% goes towards benefit. If it's, a, if, it's an honest, if it's an honest person, that goes towards research and development. Um, but these days, that doesn't exist. And these days, uh, a lot of these places can't hold you in a roster because uh, they're doing the same thing that the reps are doing. Like, I need this fucking job. I'm only charging yeah. like 5%. So I need this fucking gig. So I'm going to, and I have to prove to the agencies that I have the talent in my, in my roster. So they'll call me up and be like, can we just put you on our website? And for a while, that was a thing that I was trying to play, but then I wouldn't get the work. The work would always go to the lowest common denominator, like that director that had the fucking reel of like toilet paper ads and carpet ads and all that stuff. And in, in, that, in that business world there in Boston, it's like safe, 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 safe. You know, hmm. this guy's worked with this and this guy's worked with that. Um, and so then for like a couple of years went by and it's like, we're never getting work. And the only work that we would get from that production company would be smaller stuff. And then it's just like... I should be on as many production companies as possible at this point. So then, then you're just like, you're trying to figure that out. So it's, it's a very rare scenario, at least in Boston. Uh, out here, I'm in the process of figuring it out. Out here, it's a little different. But uh, in Boston, it was like, they won't commit you to their roster. And if you were going to commit to a roster as a director, I would always say um, to the people there, I'm like, what are they giving you? Are they going to finance specs? Are they going to help promote you? Are you just someone that's on their website that's going to end up in a stack of treatments that they send out to the clients? I would hate that. Yeah. I don't even like, I honestly don't, I don't even like giving treatments cold without uh, presenting them myself. Like I, whenever possible, I make sure that I am the one presenting my treatments and it's not, it's not possible all the time, mm -hmm. but um, I'm pretty, I'm pretty I'm as strict about it as I can be. I really do make it a priority to be like, you know what? bring me in the room and then you can have my treatment. I've done that a bunch of times or at least a phone call mm -hmm. because no one's going to pitch it the way I'm going to. And I feel like if I have the opportunity to do it in person, uh, there's a much better chance I'm going to get the job. Oh, don't get me wrong. When it's time to do your treatment stuff that you almost all the time you have the opportunity to be on the phone to do it, but it's before that. It's yeah. way before that. It's when you're, you're having that initial, when that production company is having that initial conversation with the client and the client even before that, the client's going through their website, and the clients are going. Oh, yeah. Through so their you're website. saying even before treatment, you're just having somebody oh, look at your work oh, on someone's oh, yeah. website. Just even being able to throw a treatment into the batch. I see. Yeah. So like that yeah, early yeah. on in the in the selection process is where that stuff starts to happen. You know what I mean? And because the market no. is so oversaturated, I'd hit a point where it's just like, 
We know he's got sneakers on his reel, but we need someone that shoots red sneakers. <laughs> and, and, you know, then you're dealing with me, hot-headed fucking director, who's in the background going, I created 1980s fucking Russia. I can do red sneakers. <laughs> Jesus Christ. You know what I mean? <laughs> How do you bite your tongue? Dude, at the end, like, I'm so, like, making the move for me was such a healthy thing because I was getting so fucking bitter. Really? I was, I was getting so bitter in that city just because uh, it was 10 years of, uh, mm-hmm. of playing, the, playing by the rules and, um, and then just looking at, not, not just looking at my bank account, but looking at my, my reel, looking at the kind of work and, and just, and just say, saying to myself, like, fuck, like I, I, there, there's a ceiling here and I hit the ceiling 10 years ago. Hmm. Um, and, and I'm hoping <laughs> that being out here in Los Angeles, that the ceiling's a little bit higher. <laughs> <laughs> it's not high there. I mean, I don't know where it's going to be high. Yeah. I'll have a whole episode and hopefully the episode is going to be like, it's great. Or it's going to be like, okay guys, so go buy shotguns. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God, so, dude! I, you, Ben's like, look, I was going to go on the show, and I was going to talk about my work, and uh, you know, we were no. Gonna, I think we this is far more interesting to me. <laughs> it was going to be. It was going to. be. I already more. know my stuff. I, I, I'm over it. I like hearing this stuff. <laughs> well, let, let, let me let me stop talking so much. Let's get back into. <laughs> it's a discussion. That's what this is. <laughs> um. So. Uh, I'm trying to transition my brain out of the dark place. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to climb out of this hole that I put myself in. Well, I've got. A, I have a question that we can both discuss a little bit. Sure. Where, do you think there's a value in? Uh, well, where do you think the value is? I should say, is it in developing yourself as a director who can do a lot of everything, mm-hmm. or really honing your own voice and potentially losing out on certain jobs, but being the only candidate for other jobs? Uh, where do you think the value is? And the reason I ask is because I, f- I find with myself, when you're running a production company, mm-hmm. you always have that part of you that's saying, okay, I need to keep my people busy. So I'm definitely going to take jobs that I wouldn't if I didn't have to keep a team busy. Of course. Um, and, but every time I do that, I know that it is adding to my portfolio of projects that are just like, eh. Like, I don't really want to be known for this. I don't want to be the guy that does X, Y, or Z, but I got to keep the, you know, I got to keep the train moving. Uh, And I definitely will think to myself when I'm, you know, contemplating, especially like the new year, you're thinking, what are the goals for the next year? You start thinking like, I I would like to be known uh, because of a particular storytelling style or a voice or something where people come to me because they're like, no, I want your vision I just don't, you know, I, I, I don't want to just come to you for, you know, tutorial videos or something like that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, no. Um, but it's always scary to say no to things because you don't want to sour a relationship and you also want to keep, I mean, I, I want to keep my people busy. Yeah. I mean, it's a good point because what we did as a production company is that we, we formed our own team. We had our own crew. And one of the reasons why in the beginning we started to get more work is that most of our crew was non-union. And it had to be... Yeah, it's the same with me. Yeah, it has to be non-union. Because as soon as you put a union person on that team, they, they call the union, the union reports on it, and then it becomes yeah. a big deal. 
And so out of necessity, we, ha- we were a non-signatory. We weren't a union house. I wasn't a union person. Um, and so we had to become non-union. Um, and so then you're, you're finding a lot of new talent. And you're finding a lot of talent that is in the same boat you are. As far as like being a freelancer, where they're like, I have to be non-union because that's how I make most of my work. Um, and so you start to feel like you owe them. So like you're saying, you start to feel like I, I need to keep these people busy. Like mm-hmm. I need to keep, because they are staying non-union and they're staying yeah. non-union because I promised them that I'm going to keep them busy. Um, and that's a, that's a, that's a big thing. Uh, and yes, I took a lot of jobs, um, just to, to keep a lot of folks busy. And for a while I felt like my main job, um, in my darkest point as a director, I felt like my main job was keeping other people employed. And I was uh, concerned about like, you know, uh, you know, my business partner has a mortgage or this person has this, or this person has that, or this person isn't making any money right now. Um, and so at one point I ended up almost shifting completely into producing. And I was uh, mostly producing for about a year, two years and making okay money, but I'm doing bullshit. You know what I mean? I'm doing like, yeah. here's how this app works. Me, me, me. You know what I mean? And, so, and then on, you're on set and they're just like, uh, should, the, can't, should the phone be moving or should the mo- phone be still? Because we can't track on the surface of that phone. And you're just sitting there looking around and everybody's employed, but you want to put a bullet in your face. Like, it's just like, <laughs> what the fuck am I doing? What am I doing? You know, um, I think that it's a hard decision to make. And for me... I had to come to that conclusion years later and I had to come to the conclusion of like, look, this isn't progressing my art. This isn't progressing myself as a storyteller. Why am I in this business? And Mm. am I in this business to make money? And if so, fuck this business because I should be getting 30% uh, fees to do this stuff. I should be driving around in a Mercedes because you know for a fact the people that own that business are driving around in Mercedes and BMWs and fucking DeLoreans. <laughs> this is in the 1980s decade. Uh, <laughs> uh, but also, uh, you know, so are the creative. So are the people that run the agencies. They're also making that money. And, you, and, and because of Instagram, you start to follow these, these agency folks. And it's like, wow, they're vacationing again here. And they're doing this here. And, and so if I'm in this business for money then I've got a really shitty business plan because it's not making me cash. Mm. And so then I sort of came to the conclusion of like, I need to be in this business for my work. I need to be in this business for my story. I need to be in the business for the lifestyle that I've chosen, which is to be an artist. Um, And so I had to make some pretty serious stuff. And then unfortunately, uh, you end up pissing off certain folks and people are expecting you to make the money and it, it, it ends up being like a really hard thing to deal with but it's the truth of it and if i if i hadn't come to that conclusion myself i would be miserable like i i, I literally was going to get out of the business altogether i was literally going to go back and paint houses or like really yeah yeah i got to that point i, I was in such a i was in such a depression i was in a depression for about two years Um, and you know, the depression is from, you know, doing 40 or 50 quotes and getting four of them. Mm. You know what I mean? Like you just like, what, what the fuck, man? I'm good. I know I'm good. And these people know I'm good and I'm still not getting the fucking work. Like why, why am I doing this? Mm. So I don't know if that answers the question. I think that, um, 
what is more important? I think that at the end of the day, telling stories that mean something to you, even if it's commercials, whatever it is, like doing the work that means something to you instills passion in you, instills happiness into in you. It keeps you from becoming a bitter fuck like I did. Um, and at the end of the day, the people that are buying these things from you, they, they're going to compartmentalize you anyways. So for them, they, they like the idea of going into a Walmart of directors and they just sort of walk down the shelves and they're just like, red sneaker guy, bam, this person, bam. And so you'd much rather be put on the shelf as uh, a product that you're proud of and that's innovative and not like a knockoff product. You know what I mean? Like when you go to the yeah. grocery store and it's like, do I buy the real can of beans or do I buy Stop and Shop's knockoff? You know what I mean? Oh, well, that one's cheaper. Yeah. And it started to feel that way, you know? It's an interesting it's an interesting discussion because I see the value in both of those things. And I think maybe maybe you just you know for yourself, like when you hit a point that you're like, I'm overdoing the videos about apps and stuff like that. I mean, I, I'm I'm over it. It's time to transition. It might just be something that you hit, you know, and in every person's career kind of hits that point yeah. at various points. Yeah. But also it's like, why are you in it? Like there are people that are in the business because they like to use the toys. Fucking nothing yep. wrong with that. There is nothing wrong with that. They like to use the gear. They like to use the toys. They like to shoot high definition. They like that process. And, and there are people that just like to be producing and they just like mm -hmm. bringing people together. That's fucking great too. That's really great. Um, and there's nothing wrong with those things. Um, why am I in the business? Because I got stories that I want to tell. Yeah. Um, and, and that's why I'm in the business. And I ended up having to get into the commercial world out of necessity right? Because initially I was just going to do music videos and music videos were going to be a great way to make money and also practice the craft. And there's a whole lot of creativity that's involved with music videos. Um, but then that industry tanked. Um, and so then I had to, out of necessity, because I had a company formed, I had all this stuff that I had put into motion. Um, I, out of necessity, had to go into commercials. Um, and I think I got into that business for the wrong reasons. You know what I mean? And then yeah, when, when, yeah. I, when I look back on it now, I think maybe it was because I was afraid to be a, a film director. Hmm. I think that's why. I, music videos to me would be a blast. Like I, want, I want to do more of those, but there's no budgets, at least that I can find. Yeah. Um, and I do like commercial, I like, I do enjoy the format of a commercial. I love, I love the strict timing. I like the challenge of having to tell a story in the least amount of seconds possible. Um, one of my favorite spots that we did was a five second commercial for Indeed. Oh, cool. Um, I loved it. There's just something really fun about stripping things down to their absolute basics. And I love sort of that, that process of looking at an edit and being like, okay, do we really need this shot? Or can we do this without an establishing shot? Or just cutting it down to get to size is a fun process to me. Um, but I think that if I were to, you know, snap my fingers and transition into a different uh, type of industry, I think music videos would be it, even though I know the industry's dying. Um, but I just love it. I love the, I love the medium. I, I, what I can tell you, the, the, the only way I do music videos now is I do them for people that I enjoy. Yeah. So for me, it's like, uh, because music videos really don't do much for you as a director if you're trying to get into film. Um, yep. If you're trying to get into the film world right now, it's not like I walk into an, uh, um, uh, 
an executive's office and they're like, let's look at your music videos. They don't give mm. a fuck. They just don't care. So if you're going to do that stuff, it, ultimately it's to teach yourself some new techniques and to keep yourself fresh, which I loved about music videos was that whole doing things in like a compressed amount of time, having like such a huge audience reaction, especially if you're working with bands with a huge following. Um, yeah. Then you start to get like really start to interact with audience, which is really cool. Um, and then um, just hanging out like that's why we did a ton of kill switch engage stuff, because I fucking love those guys. Mm. Like and they are such a, a good group where they treat everybody that works for them as if they're part of the band. And so there hit a point where I was doing a live shoot for them on stage and uh, I was all handheld and I'm literally performing to the music, but I'm also performing in front of the audience because I'm part of the band. Um, and it was a, a fucking wonderful thing. It was a wonderful thing. Um, mm. I loved music videos. And the reason why I stopped doing them as a full-time gig is that you can't make rent. Like, did you, mm. you just can't. You just can't make rent doing that stuff. And unless I, uh, I'm a trust fund kid that uh, doesn't have to worry about that shit, then, you know. And th there hits a point where that trust fund kid eventually has to worry about that shit. And so, <laughs> exactly. So that, you know, that, that rotation just keeps happening and happening and happening. And, um, music videos are on the comeback. I think artists are now starting to understand the value of a music video uh, for their tour, for their merch. Because that's where artists make their money now is merch. Yeah. Straight up t-shirts and shit. So um, they're, I think they're starting to understand that value and some of the budgets are coming back up. But I'm actually going to do a whole episode next week with a pretty successful music video director. Um, and nice. I'll, I'll dig deep into, because he, he was doing it after I got in. So I'll dig deep into the world. <laughs> I want Mark uh, Romantic on my show so bad. Oh, dude, I have, a, I, I have a good story about him. But yeah, well, yeah. I really, like, we've tried. Mm -hmm. Very, very tough to reach. And uh, it just, it's it's hard. It's really, really hard to get him. But I want him on. I'm going to keep trying. Uh, I've got a good story about him, actually. Uh, so Can you I, tell him in the air? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the best types of stories. Yeah, why not? Um, I, uh, years ago... I had uh, reached out to him when I was starting in the music video business because he was the generation before us. And mm. so like him, uh, like Zach Merck, who I've had on the show, um, like a bunch of dudes from that time period were doing really great stuff and they were getting paid what they're supposed to get paid. And I remember talking, I don't think it was with Mark, it was with another guy. And uh, they were like, I can't believe you're getting into the business at this point. And this was, you know, 15, 16, 17 years ago, whatever it was. I, I can't believe you're getting into the business at this point. And I'm like, why? And they're like, your budget for the video is what my take home would be. So mm. think about that. And that's what they were telling me at that time period. And I was like, Jesus fucking Christ. Um, and with uh, Mark, uh, Mark was very approachable. Um, and I wrote to him, on his website once. I, I just wrote to him and I sent him one of the videos and he wrote back and he was a very amazingly humble person. He wrote back to me and he was like, I really like this video, I really like this stuff. And I sent him one of my movies and take this as a lesson, young filmmakers. <laughs> I sent him one of my movies. Um, I, I did this film called The Subway Stalker. And it was like this uh, pretty intense little character study and you couldn't really tell if it was doc or if it was narrative. Uh, and I sent him over this, this film and he wrote back 
he watched the whole movie and he goes, I think it's great. And he wow. he had some comment that he that he made where it was like it was creepy, well acted, believable, really fantastic. Um, I, being a fucking young uh, uh, filmmaker and not really understanding etiquette, uh, was like, oh wow, Romanek says that this is creepy and believable and everything else. And so when I started to submit that to festivals, I put his quote on 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 stuff, uh, okay. ass- assuming that that I that I could. And so I put his quote on all, all my stuff. And then I think what happened was, is that I was getting a little bit of press on that film and it was showing up on Google and whether or not he has like a Google alerts for his name or whether or not one day he was just Googling his name. Oh uh, no. And it came up and it had his quote on it and he wrote back to me and he was very upset <laughs> and it was so heartbreaking it was so heartbreaking for me because I respected Ugh. the man. I loved his work. Uh, it was such an amazing thing that that he was um, inspired by. My, like, he liked my work. So I was, like, fucking really into it. And I got this letter, and I felt like the biggest douchebag. <laughs> I really did. That's so embarrassing. Oh, I felt like the biggest douche. And he just was like, um, I can't believe that you put this out in public. And... <sighs> And so, I, I, so I, I wrote back to him. I wrote back to him, and I was just like, "Dude, I, you're the last person in the world that I want to fuck over and be you know, like." This was completely. I thought it was. Okay. I'm such a moron, you know, like a very self-deprecating as possible. And I never heard back from. Him. Oh um, no! And I will say this on air: I am the biggest douchebag. <laughs> Well, hopefully he's hearing this and he stops hating you and comes on Go Creative Show. Actually, I'll invite him on Go Creative Show to give his side of the story oh my here. God, That's going to be fucking Let's turn horrible. this into a thing. Oh my God, it's going to be so bad. He's going to be so mad. He's going to be like continuously pissed. He's like, this kid's still fucking talking about it. And the, 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 I love that. Dude, and the thing that's so crazy is that um, I've been uh, in and out of... Uh, uh, Ridley Scott's offices for no reason that I'm not going to address on here, but I've been in and out of his offices and Romanek works with those guys a lot. And, um, and they're like, I've had this level of anxiety where like I'm, I'm in there and I'm like, I'm going to bump into him and he's going oh to, he's going to recognize me, which he won't. He probably won't even remember no this fucking story. He won't even remember the story. And I'm just like, he's going to recognize me. And he's going to tell everybody what a piece of shit I am. <laughs> <laughs> I guess there are worse people that could call you an asshole, so that's fine. <laughs> yeah, woo. Oh, I'm all flush here. I'm flush here just telling the story. It's just bringing back like real fucking embarrassment heat, man. I'm just a ball that's of heat. That's really man. embarrassing. Oh, fuck. Um, that is really, really embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> I did something kind of douchey like that, too. It wasn't in a pub. Well, it was in a public forum, but it wasn't that bad. But like... um. Our very one of our very early my my band was called Violet Nine and there is the strange thing is is there's another Violet Nine performing <laughs> now and it's like why like they don't own the website they don't have the Facebook page the Instagram page we're still you know we we're not um, doing shows all the time but like we've been around for a decade longer than these yeah. guys I don't really understand why it's not the best name anyway like why I mean find another name but um <laughs> so the name of the band was Violet Nine and um. We, our very first demo was produced by Sean Calder, I'm uh, Sean Slade and um, oh, Calder, I can't remember his first name, 
but it's Caldery and Slade. And they were in Boston and they produced the Benz, Radiohead, the Benz. Oh, cool. So I was like so excited because Radiohead was everything for me at that time. Yeah. And um, I still love those guys. But like, so I was super excited. And this was, you know, in an age where like, it wasn't even a blog. It was like a, like an AOL chat or some stupid thing like that. Like a message board, <laughs> some music message board. And I, I put on there and, oh my God, I wish I have a screenshot of it because I wish I could remember the exact language. But it was something like I pretended to be them and post on like a message board saying, oh, we're so excited to be working with Violet Nine. And I signed as their names and it was just, ah, I'm getting hot right now talking about this. It's the worst. I can't, why am I saying this to the people listening to your show? But you know what? Fuck it. Like that, that's what this is. It's an opportunity to just put out the worst, most embarrassing moments. But that, I still, I still think about that moment and it like, I like dread how horribly embarrassing I was and how disgusting I was. Oh. <laughs> and like, I, I'm, it was just such a gross feeling. And it wasn't like they didn't respond to it. It probably never even got to them. But just the fact that I was pretending to be them on a message board, yuck. Ugh. It was awful. Ugh. It was awful. It's <laughs> you know, really, really cheesy. And I remember like, I just did it on my own. And um, one of the other guys in the band reached out to me and they're like, did you post that about, um, you know, Coldery and Slade? And I'm like, uh, yeah. And like, that's really, really douchey. <laughs> you got <laughs> to get that down. <laughs> I think it's even worse having another member of the band see it and be like, ugh. It's oh, dude. terrible. What? And dude, this is shit. You know, I, I did my thing when I was very young in the industry. And, and I think when you first start out, there's a level of excitement that uh, comes with like progressing a bit. Um, and then there's also a little level of desperation that's there. <laughs> a little? Yeah. That was all desperation. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, so I, you two, advice to young folks, like if you don't want to be sitting in the hot seat, literally, that we're in right now, uh, just check yourself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> literally oh check yourself. Oh, fuck. Man. Yeah, it was gross. It was gross. It's really gross. Yeah, dude. Well, you know, it's good. It's good. As you get older, you uh, you learn from your douchey mistakes, and uh, you try to become a better person. That's all you can do. That's all you can do, man. We covered a lot know. of ground here. Yes, we did. Where are we at? Wow. What, what are you going to title this show? It's 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 just it's had such a giant scope. I don't know. I don't know. Two podcasters complaining? <laughs> no, it's just the the dark side. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, it's been good, man. It's been a good episode to uh, sort of uh, talk about this stuff. And you know what? We could have... All right, look, I, I had every intention of setting out to do this show and basically just talking about your work and, and, and you know, painting a pretty picture. You know what I mean? Like, let's talk about your work. Let's talk about your stuff. But... I think it's an. Who cares? I, think, I think it's an injustice. I really do, and I think that a lot of folks that are getting in this business need to understand what's going on behind the scenes. They need to understand that this stuff is is playing out this way. And I try to open my doors to my listeners. Like, if you guys have any questions about stuff, and if I'm available, just write me a write me a note, send me something, and then I, I'll try to respond to it because. There isn't this communication, and the union has such a bad taste in its mouth in the commercial industry, but it's, I feel like there needs to be some sort of necessary 
in between. I think there needs to be, I'm not saying there needs to be a union, but there needs to be a communication amongst uh, people that work in this business, especially in a very small marketplace like Boston, because Boston is a small marketplace. And it's, yeah, you can still be very successful there, but it is very much a small marketplace. And uh, I think the thing about Boston that's interesting is that it is a campus for colleges and that you are getting a lot of students that are coming out of Emerson that are coming out of those places and going into uh, directly into the industry. So yeah, uh, you have a pretty big pool of young, 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 young uh, people that are doing it. And with that youth comes insecurity. And, uh, you know, as and I don't want to paint. Let me just say this. I don't want to paint uh, agencies in a bad light. I don't want to paint these businesses in a bad light because we are these agencies. We are these businesses. I mean, how often do you go to the store and go like, well, I want a better deal on this. Like, which roll of toilet paper is cheaper? You know what I mean? And that's what we do. I mean, we're bred to do that shit. You know, as, as, as Americans, we're just like, I got a fucking sweet deal. Walmart rolled into town and I get all my shit. And it's like, yeah, but they also put all these like businesses out that are your neighbors. So they no longer have jobs, man. Um, I do think it is fun working with agencies though. Like, I don't think we were talking negatively about agencies. I mean, yeah. What's great about working with an agency that you just don't get when you work directly with a business is your project's probably going to be seen by more people because it's part of a fully funded, fleshed out campaign. Like that is awesome. You know, you're not, the local bank in your neighborhood is probably not going to buy airtime across the country, but a project with an agency will. So it's like, you do get more eyes on your stuff and it is fun. It is fun working in those situations. I think it's a really good learning experience and there's definitely room to be creative. It's just that a lot of your job is managing other people. Mm -hmm. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, you just got to figure out how to get your creativity you know, squeezed into that other job that you have to do. Right. And that's where we were starting on this episode. And I, I, I also want to put out there that I enjoy doing that work and I enjoy doing commercial work. And I'm looking forward to doing commercial work out here in, in Los Angeles just because you'll probably a, do more commercial work. Why not? I oh, mean, dude, I love by it. the way, your um, art of plating project is awesome. Oh, thanks. Awesome. Man. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I, I love it. I got into that shit because I love food. You know, so who for, doesn't? Yeah, well, you know, so for for me, it was like, well, if I'm going to spend time on sets, let's do food. <laughs> uh, yeah. And that, once again, talking about leaning into stuff, leaning into what you love, and leaning into what you like—that's my big push right now. Is uh, you know, food products, drinking products, that kind of stuff. Because I've that's cool. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it, and I, there's a there's there's still money in that. Um, and then when you're on those sets, it's just like cool. Well, who's going to eat this leftover chicken? <laughs> we just did for Panera. That was my first like higher end food project. Um, it awesome. was cool. Just like slow motion stuff for their grain bowls. Awesome. And, um, yeah, it, it's that type of stuff is awesome. Like I, I don't have any food stuff on my reel until this thing's done. Um, it's fun, but it's, cool. it's really, yeah, it was, it was a different experience. It really was. It's fun. You're, you're dealing with like food stylists and you're dealing with like how to cheat the system. Like I did, uh, the bat. The last big campaign I did in Boston was the uh, Sam Adams Summer uh, spots. So yeah, and that was through Arnold. That was with Arnold, um, and uh, that was a blast because I had to learn about beer and how to shoot beer correctly. And uh, it, it's just there's this whole system in place on like how to like 
laminate the labels so that way you can have them wet and the labels don't start peeling off. Uh, like the combination mm. of like glycerins and stuff to get that drip so that it doesn't really change. And then uh, they brought in a pore specialist, which is a guy who specifically works for Sam Adams and he's the coolest dude. And all he does is pour beers. And he's like nice. the man at it. Um, and we had him on set to do those pour shots that are in those spots. And he was explaining to me, like, if you want the perfect head on a beer, and let me, I'll give you guys a little tip here. If you want the perfect head on a beer, what you do is you, uh, for a shot, you pour that beer, leaving enough room for the head on top of it. And then you take a chopstick, like a wooden stick, and you stick it in that beer and you stir it up. Now, the wood causes a chemical reaction. However that works, the wood starts to make it foam. So you really? can just slowly stir that beer and it'll build that head where you want that head, which is fascinating. Wow. Yeah. And the other thing I learned from him was that, uh, you know, when you drink beer and you feel real fucking bloated? Yep. So he showed me this. He goes, a lot of people pour their beers wrong. So a lot of people think that you're not supposed to have a big head on it. And so what they do is they, they work really hard and they pour it so that there's barely any head on top. Um, and then they think that's a great pour. So he did that to me. He poured it and he showed me that. And then he took a roll of paper towels or like a scrunch of a little paper towels thing that he had. And he goes, imagine these are nachos. And he put them in the beer and it just started to foam over the top. And he's like, what happens is, is if you don't have a good head, if you don't start to get rid of some of that uh, carbon in there, carbon dioxide in there or whatever it is, <laughs> um, <laughs> Jesus Christ, the science in me. Uh, if you don't get rid of if you don't get rid of that, then uh, when you eat those nachos, it does this in your stomach, and that's why you feel so bloated with beer. And but you so, got to get the carbon monoxide out of it. Yeah. <laughs> don't make fun of me, dickhead. <laughs> I don't know what it is either. I'm trying to figure. I I wanted to answer you and I couldn't, but all I could do is come up with a, an annoying little dig. <laughs> So I went with that. Uh, but uh, yeah, no. So th th that was really fascinating to me. And so that they, they build special glasses that when you pour it, it starts to do that and it swirls and it makes it work really well. And then and it was a fascinating dude. And that's what I liked about doing food stuff is that there's this whole science behind it. Um, and being obviously a, a horribly educated kid, I uh, don't understand all the science, obviously. Uh, yeah. But um, there's something really fun about it. And there's a lot of magic that is still in uh, food stuff. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's cool. I'd like to do more of that. It's fun shit, dude. It's really fun. Yeah. All right, so we've been gabbing, gabbing, gabbing. It's been a great episode, actually. We're about an hour and 30, so... Yeah. I think we should probably wrap it up. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, okay, so... Um, I guess just plug... I could throw out a couple plugs so people know where to find me. Sure, but before um, that, let me, let me wrap yeah, it up the I, way I would normally on the show. At this point is when I usually allow my guests... Uh, to give a little word, like a little advice, a little words of wisdom okay. to the younger folks. And so let me ask you a question. Let's see if, um, okay, all right, here we go. So you get, you get that initial selection, right? So you're one of the, you're one of the directors that has to put in a bid, right? And you're one of the directors that creates a treatment. So you go through the process of creating this treatment, writing this treatment, putting it down on paper, and then you have to do <laughs> the dreaded conference call, where it's you mm -hmm. and probably 15 people on that conference call. Um, how, do you, what is your, how do you navigate one of those things? 
Well, I'm, I'm practicing that thing a hundred times before I get on the phone, for sure. I'm really thinking about it as a presentation. I'm thinking about it as if I'm you know, on stage presenting this to a crowd. Because I want to make sure that, like, that is an opportunity to show that you are a storyteller and you need to be able to tell the story while you're on the phone with them. If you can't interest people while you're on the phone with them talking about your project, chances are the project is just kind of not going to be that interesting to them to begin with. So I feel like figure out a way to tell the story of your vision for this, but keep it interesting. Have, you know, different story points in it. Have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Uh, really try to find a way to unveil little tidbits of it along the way so you keep their attention. I mean, that is your, that's the first time you're going to show them how you can tell a story. So take the opportunity to make your presentation as good as possible. That's good advice. That's great advice, man. Awesome. Um, so yeah, let's, what are you, what are you plugging? What are you selling? What are you, what are All you right, so couple things. Uh, first, I host the Go Creative Show podcast, which you are a guest on, and I'm going to be releasing that in early November. Sweet. Um, you can find that at gocreativeshow.com. Um, and the show's a blast. Like We have DPs and now more and more directors from you know big, huge TV shows and movies. We've got uh, the DP and the director for The Lighthouse coming on. We had the DP from Joker and um, Bohemian Rhapsody and hell yeah uh, we've we really had like amazing opportunities with awesome guests um, over the past few years um, El Camino um, so it, it, we've got really great guests and if you guys like cinematography you like behind the scenes you want to know how these projects are created Go Creative Show is a really good way to learn from um, you know the A-list behind the scenes people that are making all these projects um, and then other than that my company is called BC Media Productions and, um, you know, you can find the work that we're doing, the commercial work, the other projects. I I'm trying to do more on Instagram. So when we have shoots going on, we are posting all day to the stories. So if you like seeing behind the scenes uh, type work, um, you can follow, uh, follow me on uh, Instagram at Ben Consoli. And you'll, um, you'll see all of our stuff behind the scenes on Instagram. We're really, really good about that. We post a ton when we're on shoots. So it's a cool way to see what we're up to. And if you guys are in Boston, and you are a PA or a budding cinematographer and you just want to start meeting new people and getting involved, we are always looking for new talent, especially PAs. It's the best way in. And uh, it's the fastest turnaround too. So we'll fall in love with a PA and a year later, they're gone doing something else. So there's always new opportunities <laughs> for PAs. So like, seriously, find us. If you're working in Boston, find us, reach out. We'd love to have you on set. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode. Uh, it uh, really was a stream of conscious uh, episode. Like um, it went where it went, um, which I think is great. Uh, sometimes I get a little nervous uh, that maybe I should be censoring myself, but then I have to remind myself that this is what the show is about. The show is about honesty, and this show is about me sharing with you what I'm going through at that moment. Um, and I just want to be clear 
this is still a really fun business uh, and you can have a really good time with this business and I'm not pointing any fingers uh, and saying that this person is destroying this business and this person isn't uh, being helpful. I think it just falls on us. I think it falls on us in general. And I think what ultimately the best thing that you can do as a young filmmaker, young photographer, is have confidence. Have confidence in your work. And don't go out into the business until you start to find just a little bit of confidence. And if you make great stuff, uh, lean into that and understand that people are going to hire you for your good stuff. People are going to hire you for your experiences and you should charge for it. And be realistic when you start to put together quotes. Uh, what I like to do is I break it all down. You know what I mean? I break down how much I need, how many crew people I need, how much time it's going to take me. Then break down the amount of hours that you think it's gonna to take to do it. And don't be afraid to charge at least what they pay an employee at McDonald's for your hourly time. Let's be real about it. And make a list of what your overhead is and make a list of what your expenses are. And then ask yourself realistically, how can I continue to do this for more than a year? How can I continue to do this for three plus years? And where do these expenses come from and where do they go? And talk to other people that work in this business. Talk to other production companies, talk to older production companies, talk to executive producers, and get an idea of where things end up. Because it changes, our lives change for us. Where I am now is completely different than where I was at 25. Completely different. And at 25 years old, I had a whole other set of goals. Uh, and I had a whole other set of needs. Um, but life changes happen, right? You go ice skating, you slip on the ice, you crack your skull open. You meet the girl of your dreams, you meet the guy of your dreams, you have kids, now you got miles to feed, right? So this is art, this is fun, but it's also a business. So you have to think about it that way. And I think ultimately, that's what this show is trying to do. This episode in particular, I'm trying to give you a bit of the real. So before you decide to get into this business, before you decide to underbid stuff, and for the love of God, if someone comes to you and says, this is an amazing opportunity for you, every job you do is an amazing opportunity, not only for you, but for that person that's hiring you because you're providing them with something that they can't do. So it's an amazing opportunity for them as well. Remember that. But it's good. And you know what, guys? I'm excited. I'm excited because I'm out here in Los Angeles, and this is the Mecca. This is the home of where it all begins. This is where uh, creative agencies want to hire their directors. Uh, so I'm very curious to see how it's different here. And I'm, so far, I've met some really great people in the industry out here, so I'm very fucking excited about it. And I've had uh, guests on the show. If you haven't heard it yet, go back and listen to the Zach Merck episode. Um, he's a very successful commercial director um, that loves what he does, and he's really good at it. Um, and I want to be there. I would love to be there. I would love to be that guy that is doing two or three commercials a year, getting paid enough money so that two or three commercials a year is acceptable, and then doing movie stuff. That's the Tony Scott way. That's the way I'd love to be doing it myself, and that's the goal. Um, and you need to set goals. 
right? You gotta set goals for yourself. And if you really want to be doing films, you have to make sure that you're working towards that goal because for years I got completely derailed from that. And that ended up leading to a really hard depression on my part. Um, and leading to a lot of cynicism and leading to a lot of what you heard on this episode um, because I wasn't doing what I wanted to do. So keep that in mind when you listen to the show. I want to again thank Ben for being on the show um, <clears throat> and definitely go check out his podcast. He has amazing guests on his show. It's the Go Creative Show. Um, and uh, I will be on his show in November. And it's a good, good episode. Uh, we talk about movie stuff. And then, um, yeah, continue to support the show by going to our um, Instagram accounts. That's uh, Mike Petchy at Instagram or In Love With The Process Pod on Instagram. Um, and if you're listening to the show on Apple Podcasts or if you're listening to the show on Spotify, please take a second, review it, give me some stars, right? Uh, because then uh, the algorithms will uh, recognize that we exist. And if I exist and I'm higher in the algorithms, then my guests can be better. Uh, I was just talking to Ben offline about this. It's difficult getting bigger guests uh, unless you have the traffic. And I know once these people come on, to the, on the show, they'll love it. Uh, but I just have to convince their people that their, our show is worth the time. And the best way to do so is if you guys are reviewing the fuck out of it. And if you're sharing it with your friends. So do so. I love you guys for watching or listening to the show. Um, and uh, that's about it. That's it for this episode. So um, many more on the way. I don't know what the order of operations for when these are going to get released. I'm releasing them all over the place. Um, but uh, plenty of really great guests for season two. I'm in love with the process. So thanks for listening. <laughs>